Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Take Human Action PA. We're at episode 52 now. I'm Calvin. I'm your host. And we're going to try something a little different today. We're going to try a solo episode because there's, there's a lot of topics to talk about. And I do, I do have some guests lined up for uh, the coming weeks. But for now, there's just uh, so much in the news uh, related to... Uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia specifically, that we are going to get into it. So let's do that. And while we're at it, I am also going to talk about some of the today and history topics that I have been posting on the uh, Libertarian Party Pennsylvania social media accounts. They seem to be getting pretty good traction. So I assume that means people are interested in it. That's good. So I'm going to take the opportunity to not just talk about those news topics, but expand upon some of those today in history posts a little bit. So uh, we'll uh, we'll go into, I got four topics to talk about. So we'll go into that, see how it goes. Let me know what you all think. Uh, you know, give share share the channel, give the video a like and give some comments if you like. The content like this with the solo episodes and with some of the news that'll be specific to Pennsylvania or, you know, again, Philadelphia in this case, and some of the Today in History content that we've been doing for the Libertarian Party Pennsylvania, then, you know, we can keep that going. So, you know, let us know. Uh, As always, don't forget that the Liberty 101 class is coming up on August 17th. Uh, All the details for that. Are in the episode description, so check that out. Uh, without further ado, uh, let us get into it. Well, yeah. Bear with me here. Okay, that's a little smaller than I'd like it. Let's try this again. 
Okay. Hmm. Okay, that's better. So now that you all can read that, so the first story that we are going to talk about here is the um, fact that uh, Maj Ture was unfortunately uh, taken in to custody in Philadelphia, uh, I believe it was uh, June 20th. So he was, I believe, open carrying, uh, walking around Philadelphia, and of all things, giving a presentation for uh, Tom Woods's School of Life. So he was live streaming for Tom Woods's school while he was uh, walking around and caring, as he virtually always does. So this is nothing. This is nothing new, uh, <laughs> you know. And it's definitely within our rights to do so. As, as I'll, uh, well, well, we'll get into the specifics a little bit a little bit later. I'm I'm no lawyer, so take take the legal aspects of this story with a bit of a grain of, of salt here. This is just my best interpretation, as I can tell from reading the news about the story. Uh, and well, there actually hasn't been any news uh, per se in terms of uh, anything in papers or anything like that, articles on this. Um, I've only seen it covered on social media so that's where that's where we had to go looking for this, but it is there. So to start with, uh, he they're saying firearms are not to be carried without license. On uh, let's see the second one, carry firearms public in Philadelphia. So the second one, there's definitely there should be some grounds to challenge that. Um, and I'll say exactly why in a minute. Um, firearms not to be carried without license. So that, that's a little open. I, I have to look up exactly what that statue is because up until this point, I interpreted that as you have to carry your license around with you. But reading this again, that could be referring to just carrying a fire without any license whatsoever, regardless whether you're carrying it or not. So that is not exactly clear um, from this. So it's now that I think about it, it is probably it's probably the second one. Uh, there is some grounds for a case on that front too. So let me break down what I mean here. Uh, so, uh, but just to be clear, as far as Maj himself goes, uh, Firearms Policy Coalition uh, illuminates us on uh, what happened here, at least as far as Maj personally. Um, bail was posted this morning. Uh, we were going to handle that if it wasn't. So that's good. It's good that Firearms Policy Coalition is on top of this. Um we have sent Maj a text message with an attorney referral and have excellent local counsel ready to evaluate the facts and develop strategies at no cost to him. We've been a large and possibly the largest supporter of Black Guns Matter over the years and want to see that work continue. So that is good. That is good to see. So good on Fire Firearms Policy Coalition for getting behind that 
pretty quickly. It seems like he is in good hands, and while there will still be some challenges in court, <clears throat> I'm, no, I'm sorry, some appearances in court that he'll have to make, there are certainly grounds on which to challenge this if they desire to do so. And I'll, ex I'll explain. So for starters, PA Supreme Court in 2014, there's a case called Commonwealth versus Hicks. You can look that up. Police cannot legally stop you for just carrying a gun. So right off the bat, that should tell you that in the state of Pennsylvania, if you are just carrying a gun, that alone is not enough for them to just stop you. So if they did on those grounds, which it seems to be the case, that is already an illegal stopping, illegal search. So that alone could be enough. Um, but if that is not enough, there is another angle he come at, he could come at this. So he may have been unable to get a license uh, because of a record. I am not going to dive too deeply into that. But there was also a case recently and. I think it was the district court for Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey at the very least. And there was a case where a felon um, was denied his gun rights and uh, the court overturned that uh, restriction that said that felons just automatically could never have any sort of firearms again. And they just lose it forever, which is the current status quo. And I think that, that, that there's just no reason for that. It just there's no Second Amendment that says, you know, right to bear arms shall not be infringed unless you've committed a crime <laughs> at some point in the past. And, you know, the Pennsylvania Constitution is even stronger. The right to bear arms shall not be questioned. So how much more do we need to go into this before it becomes clear that, you know, it's it's just your. It's just your natural inherent right. Now we've broken down the philosophy behind why this is important uh, in previous episodes. I'm not going to dig into that again, but those are the constitutional justifications for this. Excuse me. Um, so, um, and I even double checked as Philadelphia does have a special home rule charter that gives them more authority than every other municipality in the state of Pennsylvania. So I was wondering, is there some sort of grounds for, uh, you know, where Philadelphia can say, oh, you know, this state, these state cases don't apply to us because, you know, we have the home rule charter. Well, uh, just a, a little bit of research. I'm just going to read it from here. Uh, uh, home rule in Pennsylvania, a home rule municipality in Pennsylvania is one incorporated under its own unique organic charter or constitution created pursuant to the state's home rule and option plans laws approved by referendum. Local governments without home rule can only act where specifically authorized state law home rule municipalities can act anywhere except where they're specifically limited by state law. So what does that mean? So if you just pick a random town in uh, Montgomery County, which is just outside of Philadelphia, then 
they can only pass laws within the bounds of what the state government says you can do. If the state government passes a law that says, you know, the local municipalities are authorized to determine how many chickens you can have in your property, something like that. Um, then the local municipalities can pass, I don't know what to fall under, zoning ordinances or something saying, you know, these areas, if you have so much acres can have, you know, chickens on your property and these properties can't, something like that. Um, so that's one thing. However, if there was no such law give that would give the local municipalities the ability to uh, put any sort of regulations on if you could have chickens on your property or not, and the local municipality then passed a law anyway that said you can't have chickens on your property, they would be exceeding their mandate under what the municipalities are allowed to do. They can only do what the state government allows them to do. They're purely at their jurisdiction. Um, but that is not the case with Philadelphia. With Philadelphia, it's, you know, unless the state government specifically says otherwise, or the state law, then they're allowed to do it. So in that situation where, you know, there's a law that says you can't have so many, or I'm sorry, there is no law that says how many chickens that you have and you can have on your property, nor is there a law that explicitly says the municipal, the local municipalities are allowed to regulate how many chickens you can have on your property. So if that is the case, and there's no specific authorization that gives the municipalities the ability to do that, Philadelphia under the home rule charter could just do that anyway. They could just pass a law says you can't have any chickens on your property anywhere in the city. And, you know, they don't need to have the state government's permission. It was only if they passed a law, the state government passed a law that said you're not allowed to regulate if you have chickens on your property at all, then the city of Philadelphia would have their hands tied. So that, unfortunately, allows them to pass a lot of ridiculous regulations beyond what other cities are even allowed to do. But it does mean that going back to the Supreme Court decision, this is still the court saying you're not allowed to uh, stop someone just for carrying a gun. And even aside from that, we have a progressive DA in Krasner right now in Philadelphia. So, well, I guess he would be against guns. So that's another thing. But I can't, it would be a good optics for him to just be supporting what's essentially stop and frisk, let alone on, you know, minorities. So if you apply some political pressure there, could back come back to bite him. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. Either way, there's definitely some grounds for this to be challenged. So uh, we here wish Maj the best of luck and... Uh, we'll certainly be in touch to see uh, what's going on there. So, <clears throat> so thank you to everyone who helped spread the word about that. Um, <clears throat> so now, with that said, uh, I want to highlight one other 
policy that is being floated in the Philadelphia City Council right now that <laughs> uh, is controversial, to say the least. Um, so Philly leaders want to ban ski masks to prevent gun violence. Opponent says it's an intrusion on black youth. So just to, for anyone who's not familiar with well, even just cities in general, sometimes uh, people, uh, particularly uh, minorities, like you're saying, they might put on ski masks. Originally, uh, I think the occurrence of people wearing them went up during COVID because they would just wear them over top of or instead of uh, medical masks. So that's... Yeah, that's one thing. Um, but there were a lot of uh, convenience stores in rough neighborhoods of the city. Like I, I, I see a, a lot of them that have the signs up that say, you know, no like ski mask, no ski mask for admittance, something like that. Just making it excessively clear that if you're doing this, you know, we're going to assume you're going to try to rob the place. And that's, you know, we don't want you in here. So, you know, the store owners on libertarian grounds are certainly within their rights to do that. So, you know, that that aspect of it makes sense. And I can understand why from the shop owner's perspective, if they are in a dangerous area, they want to take some precautions. But I assume that they are reacting to. Well, they're, they're reacting to the SEPTA policy that was recently implemented, which, if you don't know, is the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority. They run all the subways, the regional rail lines going to the suburbs, uh, buses going out to the suburbs and around the city, um, trolleys, all of that uh, in basically the southern quarter of the state, almost, of PA and going into Jersey and even Delaware as well. That all falls under the jurisdiction of uh, SEPTA. So they implemented this policy. And now, um, to be clear, they're not implementing this policy across the entire city. Um, they are putting it in place. If And this isn't passed yet. This is just something they're considering. But if they do pass it, then it will be in public buildings. So that would be in like city hall, government offices, anything along those lines that's publicly owned. So um, I'm just going to read some excerpts from this for audio listeners. Uh, Philadelphia City Council members are moving to ban full face coverings in an effort to reduce crime, raising questions about the feasibility of enforcement and whether policy will unfairly target uh, black youth. In late May, SEPTA ramped up enforcement of an existing ban on wearing hooded face coverings, sometimes called ski masks or balaclavas. I've never heard of that. Um, on public transit. In mid-June, Philadelphia City Council Member Anthony Phillips and 10 other council members introduced the legislation that would forbid the garment at schools, recreation centers, daycare centers, parks, and city-owned buildings. So that's what they are trying to do. So let's see what certain people are saying about it. Uh, so it, the SEPTA policy was in response to a fully masked shooter, uh, killing a 15 year old on a bus. Uh, so 
They're not elaborating on it, but tentatively, that was what allowed the person to not be identified who committed that crime. Uh, so the council member Phillips, who is backing this policy, is saying the discourse on this subject has been focused on whether it will stop shootings. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it will. But what it will do is make it easier for the police to identify suspects and make our neighbors feel safer. So, I, I don't know. I don't think this is actually going to make the change that he thinks it will. I think it's just going to create resentment and build up the same kind of frustration that's leading to incidents like this in the first place. But... Before I get too much into it, let's let's read the uh, counter the counter argument here. So, let's see. okay. So, oh, uh, before we get to that, so there was a professor at Georgetown Law who made this comment on the policy. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> The wearing of a ski mask or a face covering in and of itself cannot be a lawful basis for a police stop or traumatizing black and brown children who are more likely to come into contact with police as a result. Yeah, so interesting enough, yeah, that's similar to the point that I was just making. So they are talking about public spaces, so anyway, there's not there's not as much a hard and fast libertarian policy when it comes to this or libertarian or something that libertarian ideology itself would point to, you know, preferring one policy or the other. Uh, is it's, it's one thing if it we're talking about, you know, whether you can carry or not, you know, reasonable self-defense, that's one thing, but I don't know with this, I just think it's going to make things worse personally, but uh, I'll read one more quote here. Uh, okay, so there's, sorry, I just had it and then I lost it. Hmm. Okay, so this is I was this is the guy I was looking for. Um, eighteen-year-old Andre Riddick is opposed to bans on ski masks. He said that some people wear them for self-protection or as a fashion choice. Uh, so he's saying he doesn't wear them himself, but he opposes the new council proposal. And here's his quote: uh, "Some the shiesty make the fit look good," he said. Everybody got their own little thing with wearing a mask. Uh, so, and then they're chiming in with the professor from uh, Georgetown Law, calling the ban a criminalizing of normal adolescent fads and trends. We're not talking about neck gears or the handkerchiefs that the Proud Boys and the Patriot, Patriot Front wore to obscure the identity. She said, police are singling out particular type of face coverings popular among urban teens. So yeah, yeah, in that sense, it does seem like they are very much singling out 
the minority communities, which, as we saw from the previous story with what happened to Maj, they're doing they're doing that enough already. It don't make it worse, please, <laughs> Philadelphia. Uh, you're just making it harder for everyone that lives there, and you know, for democratic government or sorry, a democrat government to make it clear the party. Um, you're not exactly uh, doing what you claim to be doing in your general party platform with, uh, you know, having the utmost respect or just even deferring to minorities here. So uh, we'll end the story at that because I do want to get to the uh, Today in History posts that we've been doing for the LPPA. So uh, the first one, uh, actually, I didn't, I did pull this up ahead of time, but uh, I think I will, because they're they're definitely worth a read if you have not read them already. So there's two in particular that I want to highlight that I uh, I helped with in the past week. One is the uh, history of surrounding Grover Cleveland, which I. I think I may have, I don't remember if I mentioned it early in the episode, but one of them is um, the anniversary of Gro the, when Grover Cleveland passed away. That's right here. And then the other one is the anniversary of the assassination of uh, Franz Ferdinand, uh, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary that triggered World War One. So starting with Grover Cleveland, he is possibly, in fact, I might even make this case, the most libertarian president that the U.S. ever had. So that is saying something, I realize, and I, he is not perfect, but he is pretty darn good. So let's break it down. I will read most of the tweet and I'll add some pieces here and there. And this is a thread, so it's not going to be a, you know, just one or a couple lines. Um, I promise they're juicy, though. So uh, June 24th, 1908, Grover Cleveland, who, by the way, was the only president to serve two non-consecutive non terms, although who knows, maybe Trump might be the second. But for now, he's the first and only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. So on this day, uh, June 24th in 1908, uh, Grover Cleveland, the 22nd and 24th president, passed away. So what is so special about him? Uh, Cleveland played a unique uh, role among the presidents for his commitment to free markets. His policies played a crucial role in fostering prosperity during his time in office. His belief in limited government allowed businesses to thrive and individuals to pursue their own ambitions freely. So, what did he do? Well, he was opposed to tariffs, which had been just about... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Every preceding president's favored means of uh, getting revenue for the government. In, uh, in fact, that is something that, you know, there hadn't, well, I take that back there. There had been, uh, I believe, the nullification crisis in the 1830s was over tariffs. So it's not like it hadn't been hotly debated before, but um, I don't think it had been given as much attention in the post-Civil War era up until Cleveland came along. So uh, he was definitely more of the free market faction when it came to tariffs and also one of the few presidents from the Democratic Party uh, that was even elected in the time between uh, Roosevelt and um, Andrew Johnson, who succeeded President Lincoln after his assassination. So uh, what sets Cleveland apart, though, from the candidates and the presidents in the Democratic Party that ran after him uh, being William Jennings Bryan and uh, Woodrow Wilson are the two standouts. So William Jennings Bryan was a populist and not a Trump kind of populist. He was a populist in the sense of he would support whatever policies helped farmers. Like he wanted, instead of a gold standard, he wanted a gold and silver standard. He wasn't really free market in terms of his policies either. It was just a completely different faction uh, by the time Cleveland left office the second time that had taken over the Democratic Party and uprooted the you know, free market interests that had dominated the party for the preceding decades up until that point. And we all know what happened with Wilson. Um, actually, well, I'll get I'll touch on that aspect of it once we get to the other topic of World War One. But yeah, Wilson was not a good president and he didn't run on a good platform either. So he had no pretension of being free market, really. Um, but back to Cleveland. So he was a member of the uh, the Bourbon Democrats. So that has a double meaning. So the first meaning is, well, a reference to the whiskey. So that's uh, Tennessee whiskey. And I believe that aspect of it was kind of touching on the fact that the South was a little more you know, conservative, leaning, more traditional. Um, so that was one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it was a reference to the French royal family. So they were ruled by the Bourbons. Uh, it's actually spelled the same. Uh, so that was immediately uh, pre and post Napoleon. Uh, they they were in power and they were considered reactionary by the French people. And that term kind of rubbed off into this faction of the Democratic Party in the United States as well during this time period. Uh, so he was the last and I think only president that actually made it to office from this faction, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and historians often blame him for the Panic of 1893, which is what uh, a lot of historians point the finger and said, oh, his irresponsible economic policies caused this. This is why we can't have free markets. Um, 
and panic is what they called a recession or a depression back in that day. Uh, so you could just think of it that way. Um, however, Benjamin Harrison, who was president for one term in between Cleveland's two terms, and even that was <laughs> even that election was a bit of, of shenanigans. So things really do uh things really do uh repeat themselves in history it's 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 pretty funny so i'm trying to remember what year that was i want to say that was the election of 1892 uh yeah that sounds right so the election of 1892 was very narrowly won by harrison and not by cleveland uh so uh uh, Cleveland's policies were blamed for the Panic of 1893. That was the first year of his second term in office. However, while Cleveland had maintained a sound monetary policy without any... Well, I mean, there wasn't a Fed at this point, but um, he didn't do any inflating of the currency. He didn't go for the bimetallism, as in the gold and the silver, that William Jennings Bryan would be advocating. Um, however, Benjamin Harrison, uh, who was the Republican president in between, he was spending money for government projects left and right. He was, uh, you know, inflate, basically inflating money supply. And those irresponsible economic policies is what set the stage for the panic of 1893. Because I don't remember how late into the year the panic started. But still, if Cleveland assumes office, I don't remember exactly when, March back then. I don't think it was January. But uh, still, he's going to be in office for like three or four months and everyone points the finger at him and say, you, you caused this crisis? It's like, no, his policies were, at least in that second term, they were basically undoing the mess that Benjamin Harrison had created and getting us back on a sound monetary footing. So... He there was again there was no Federal Reserve, but he basically defeated the poor monetary policy of that the policies of that day. And now I'm kind of wishing he had come after Wilson because he probably would have abolished the Federal Reserve and undone that whole system. But not going to get into alternate histories here. So uh, let's get into his foreign policy because there's a lot to talk about with that too. Uh, Cleveland's leadership extends beyond economic matters. Now I'm reading the tweet again. Uh, a fervent anti-imperialist, he demonstrated a steadfast commitment to the principles of self-determination and non-intervention in foreign affairs. Uh, so what do I mean by this? I'll read the next part. Uh, Cleveland stood firm against the annexation of Hawaii, recognizing the right of native Hawaiians to govern themselves. This principled stance showcased his respect for the sovereignty of other nations and the importance of preserving individual liberty despite backlash. So that is important. That captures it right there. So basically what happened was, and I'm not going to get into all the details about this now. So tune in next week. And after some delays, I finally have a, another uh, well, another guest lined up next week to go all into the backstory of Hawaii and how Hawaii was really forcefully annexed into the United States and 
the surrounding injustices behind that. Um, the short version for the purposes of tonight is that the Kingdom of Hawaii was, was its own independent country for almost 100 years, uh, was overthrown with the diplomatic intervention of the United States ambassador to the country and some, uh, I don't remember if they were Marines or sailors, but just the United States military. They came in and teamed up with some American plantation owners that were on the islands and basically overthrew the monarchy in uh, coup. And while the monarchist forces could have fought it out, the queen at the time didn't want to spill the blood of her own people. So she stood down. And by the time the word reached the U.S., Cleveland was president at the time, and he sent a commission out there to investigate what exactly had happened. And by the time he got all of the information that he needed, he basically was sent back a message to tell everybody who had been involved, like the ambassador, I believe he was recalled, and he basically gave instructions to the uh, plantation owners and everybody who had participated in the coup and said, we're not annexing, you need to restore the queen. So he was putting his foot down against imperialism, which the United States was starting to get into at that point. The Spanish-American War was still a few years away, but we were right on the cusp of that. So he was putting his foot down, saying no to annexation. And unfortunately, it was not to be because a few years later, William McKinley comes in office and well, that's one of the first things he does. So after a few years of having the Republic of Hawaii governed by these planters who had overthrown the queen, uh, you later have the country annexed to become the territory of Hawaii, and then finally the 50th state in 1959. But Cleveland would not have it, and uh, maybe more could have been done, but in the scheme of comparing it to other presidents, you know, respecting the sovereignty of the native Hawaiians and their government, that is about as, you know, that that's about as noble of an action and principled of an action as, as you could expect of the United States president. So, you know, I don't want to pine on him too much, but that's definitely noteworthy and something that should be mentioned here. Uh, so um, I'll make two other comments on Cleveland before I move on. So uh cleveland stated the friendliness and charity of our country can always be relied upon to relieve fellow citizens in their misfortune um in it he warns of welfare from the government uh while perfectly capturing the american spirit of generosity towards their neighbors so if there was i believe there actually was a bill like this but i don't remember the specific name of the bill or the circumstances behind it but he did write a very eloquent veto message of we of which i believe this was a part so there was some sort of disaster relief bill uh for drought or earthquake or something like that and you know these days a bill like that going through congress would just fly through it's like yeah of course we're gonna give them money print why not you know who cares about inflation what is it what is inflation no <laughs> that's that's what they would do now but back then uh yeah, it was a little different because, I mean, there weren't too many presidents after this or even before him that would have done this. But he basically vetoed it 
and said that's not our job. That's not the job of the United States federal government and the Constitution does not authorize us to do this. And he put value in the American spirit of generosity to contribute to our neighbors. And despite the fact that we are taxed so heavily, I think that that very much still applies. Like the Amer Americans are generous people. They give more of their income than, you know, at least percentage wise than a lot of other people in other countries do. So, you know, he's capturing a good sentiment there, uh, no doubt. So to end it, um, as we remember Grover Cleveland, let us honor his contributions to our nation's history. May his legacy remind us of the immense value of individual freedom, economic prosperity, and the principles that guide us as libertarians. So I'll leave it at that because I don't think it can really be said any better. So good time to remember Grover Cleveland and uh, the way the free market principles in terms of and non-interventionism, most importantly. Uh, pr those principles that could be used to apply to our country if it was in the right hands. And I'm not saying that, you know, having this system is optimal, but, you know, under the system as it is, you know, you can't, you, you well, at least in comparing it to things we've actually had and not some hypothetical, you know, imagined preference, this is about as good as you can get. So, I'm going to hit post the link to this tweet in the chat because I definitely want to encourage you all to follow not just our page of the PA Mises Caucus, but the LPPA page to get more good content like this. Uh, and then we'll go to the last topic. Um, so I'll have to go back here. So this was just from the other day. Uh, so this time I will post the link to this tweet in the chat so you can follow along. And if you're listening to the podcast, um, audio, then, uh, if you go to the LPPA page on Twitter, uh, you, these should, they should be there. Um, or you can just go to YouTube and I posted the links in the comments. Uh, so. I'll read certain excerpts of it and then comment on it as I go. Um, on this day, June 28th in 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, uh, with, leading to the July crisis. Well, at first, the crisis seemed like a dispute between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. It soon dragged the world into a four-year destructive world war. So something interesting to keep in mind about Europe in 1914 is that unlike now where i don't even know how many countries there are in europe now maybe gosh 50 <laughs> I, I don't really know depends on how you do the math but uh, back then there were hmm, 20 maybe 20 countries a lot of uh the smaller countries had been absorbed into the great powers of that day so germany austria hungary and italy all had military alliances with each other uh and france and great britain and russia had a military alliance with themselves so there were two opposing 
powers uh, that were basically standing on a knife's edge. Anytime there was a crisis with their imperial colonies in Africa or in the Balkans where everybody was fighting over territory in the Balkans, particularly the Russians, the Austria-Hungarians and the Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey. All those countries were, and, and the independent uh, republics that had recently broken away from uh, Turkey, such as Greece and Serbia, Bulgaria, and Romania, among others. Uh, they were fighting for land amongst each other. So tensions were always running high. And sure enough, uh, Serbian nationalist uh, assassinates the heir of the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire. And they make an ultimatum with a series of demands uh, to the Serbian government, basically as uh, some sort of recompense for this incident that had just occurred of damaging their national honor, even though I don't even think to this day there's any direct definitive evidence that the Serbian government even had anything to do with the assassination. But that's, they did that anyway. But let's see what happens here. So after the assassination, Austria-Hungary sent an ultimatum to Serbia. Uh, <clears throat> despite Serbia meeting nine of the 10 demands, Austria-Hungary declared war. Soon, Germany would join the side of Austria-Hungary and Russia, France, and uh, United Kingdom or Great Britain would join Serbia to form the allies. Uh, and that was how the war started. But let's break down a little bit what happened before the declarations of war were actually made. And people make somewhat simplistic comparisons between World War One and World War II and treat them as though they're the same. They're not. Like in World War II, it's much more clear that there's, you know, evil countries that had to be, well, that, that they had to be dealt with in, in some way. That's, that's a little more clear. In World War I, they were competing European powers and they were imperialistic powers and, they, you know, they, they were not committing anywhere near the crimes that the war that a lot of those equivalent nations that existed at the beginning of World War II were committing. They just cannot be compared like that. And I think that'll become clear as we go along here and I read through the rest of this. So despite portrayals to the contrary, Kaiser Wilhelm, who was the basically the king of Germany at that point, um, was not calling for war. In fact, he was at the forefront of backroom negotiations to avert it. So I think most people do not know this. They just think that whoever the leader of Germany was in either of the two world wars, they're just automatically militaristic and bloodthirsty and all they wanted was war. But that is not the case at all, as, at least in the first world war. That is a, that is a myth and we'll break down why. And uh, you can look this up in the Willie Nicky telegrams. Kaiser Wilhelm and the Russian Tsar, Nicholas, who were old friends and also distant family, uh, tried to de-escalate the crisis. There was even a proposal to refer the dispute to international mediation at the Hague. Yes, Hague courts did exist at that time. 
and Russia even temporarily demobilized its forces. So it's not as though, at least at that point, that this was inevitable. Uh, however, their meddling politicians on both sides, uh, Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Russia, basically all had their militaries and their civilian politicians, uh, in some cases, clamoring for war. National pride demanded it. So eventually, unfortunately, their hand was forced and a four plus year destructive war commenced. One thing that none of them realized, they probably thought it was going to be over in a few months as a lot of the wars up to that point had been relatively short. Even the Crimean War, I think, uh, which had happened a few decades earlier. I want to say that only lasted uh, maybe two years or something, but it was very small scale. And outside of naval battles, I, I think the only fighting was just about in Crimea, uh, where, which is, you know, if you don't know the currently, that's it's, it's the same as the territory that's currently disputed between Ukraine and Russia. So it's, it's what is technically within the borders of Ukraine now. It is occupied by Russia, just to place that. But uh, back to World War One. So, <clears throat> yeah. So you're going towards war. Uh, so besides the war hawkish politicians saber rattling, what really caused this? So... This tragedy demonstrated the catastrophic consequences that can arise from complex and intricate webs of alliances where the interests and conflicts of one nation become entangled with those of another. Uh, so that is, that is probably the most important point in this entire threat. Entangling alliances uh, are what caused this. And I'll, I'll expand on why in a little bit. Um, I did also want to mention that Imperialism played a role as well, and that caused a lot of crises that almost triggered the war on their own. Uh, whereas imperialism is like the scramble for Africa, all the European countries trying to take territory in Africa, Pacific, India, Asia, all those places they were setting their foot into the territory of the natives and claiming it for their own country. So the tensions in building these rival far-flung expensive empires added to that as well. Uh, so I'll go through these next points to touch back on alliances. So chain of events leading to the First World War was not inevitable from the start. If not for the entangling alliances, other great powers could have mediated the dispute rather than fan the flames. Because like I said earlier, they had the International Court to Hague. Other disputes had been resolved similarly. Um, there's no reason that they couldn't have done it again. And that was even a specific suggestion that Tsar Nicholas made to refer the matter of the dispute between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia to the court of the Hague. Um, so what's the lesson here? The United States, a nation founded on the principle of liberty must be vigilant of the dangers of entangling alliances. Diplomacy is important but we must be sure to not surrender our sovereignty nor our freedom for global interventions or alliances 
that compromise our national interests. So let's think about it this way. What are some analogies of the alliance systems of the World War I time period that can be applied to now? So the Warsaw Pact from the Cold War era comes to mind of the Soviet Union and its bloc, but also NATO. NATO itself sounds very much like this. And if one nation is attacked, all the other nations are attacked. So why is it that we're putting ourselves in this position again? Why is it that we're, you know, we're saying if any of these other countries are attacked, then that means we are automatically going to war with what? Without a declaration of war, even? Does, does sovereignty mean nothing? As we remember the July crisis and the start of the First World War, we must remember not just the dangers of entangling alliances, but the importance of diplomacy to prevent war. This is why the Libertarian Party supports peace and non-intervention. So, again, if we're looking at the present day, if the person who was in the White House wanted there to be peace, like really wanted there to be peace in Russia and Ukraine, there would be peace. They could arrange a negotiated settlement that would have ended the war at the very least months ago, if not prevented it from happening in the first place. So why are we so focused on war? Why are we so focused on saber rattling? Why are we so focused on proxy wars? And why do we have no care for... You know, the possibility of nuclear holocaust, which didn't even exist in the World War One time period, but is very much a threat now. Why do none of those concerns seem to matter? So share this post if you agree and join us in promoting the lessons of the past for a more peaceful future. So, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's where we'll end it. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will be back next week and we'll be talking about uh finally fingers crossed talking about hawaii um we have guests coming on in the coming weeks as well uh so until next time uh don't forget to take human action bye you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.